for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We hope you can join us to celebrate Reformation Day 2021 on October 30th in Louisville, Kentucky. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches invites you to a one-day conference featuring Pastor Sam Waldron, Ron Miller, and Ben Carlson, who will be speaking on Solus Christus, or the Doctrine of Salvation by Christ Alone. To learn how you can attend in person or via live stream, visit marbach.org slash Christalone. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. This passage that we're working through a little more slowly than I planned on communication. There are just those certain passages where God brings together many things on certain subjects, and this is one of them. There are so many principles here about our relationship with others. about how we get along with others or don't get along with others that need to be understood. And as I said in our call to worship, one thing we have to get in our minds when we consider the Christian home and family, and that is that every characteristic and virtue and command that Christians are commanded to be and do must be done first in the home. The home is not a place where we can relax the moral law of God because we know each other and because we know the other one is going to accept pretty much what we say or do and not leave us. The Christian home is meant to be the first place where we practice all of those virtues of human love before we ever step out the door. So that what we do at home and what we do at church and what we do at the world is the same. And when our family members feel that we treat them with less respect than we do our co-workers, or our friends, or our church member friends. What they are seeing is a lack of personal Christian holiness. If there is any place, as we saw last week, where we're to be quick to listen, it's in the home. Slow to speak, it's in the home and slow to anger, it's in the home. But sadly, we tend to be the opposite and be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger while we're out in the world. Half listen, speak too quickly and quick to anger at home. That's not the way it was meant to be. That is not why Jesus Christ died upon the cross. He came to change us in our first relationships. 
to make us right with God and right with men. First, our wife. Second, our children. Third, the rest of our family members. Our Christian friends and family. And even the enemies of Christ in the world. It all begins at home. The church begins at home. The nation begins at home. It all begins there. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, there are some commandments. They are not options. They are commandments of God where God's Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul what to say to the Ephesian church under the directions of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the very Word of God. And here's what Paul had to say on communication in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but let, rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for being so gracious as not only to send Your Son to die for sinners like us, but having put Him in charge of all things in heaven and earth to cause Him to send the Holy Spirit into the heart of the Apostle Paul and write these inspired commands that we may know the rules of communication in our homes. What You hold us accountable for and how we ought to act so that we can govern our minds and our tongues. And we thank You that You have filled the Scriptures with instruction on how to live. We ask, Lord, that You would cause us to wake up and see that the first place we're held accountable for our behavior and our words is in the home. The Bible is a home-centered book 
He first made a man and a woman to love one another and the two to become one. Then you added children into that home and that unit. And through the Old Testament, we see the family as being the place where God begins in relationship. And even the temple and tabernacle were surrounded by families and tribes. And in the New Testament, Our Lord Jesus Christ was born into a family and grew up amidst all of the fussing and yelling and fights of his brothers and sisters and failures and misunderstandings of his parents. He was tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. And when he teaches us on the family, he knows what he's saying. And we ask that you would help us to heed his advice, his counsel, and his commands And have the humility of Christianity in our own hearts to submit our practices and our habits and our preferences to the very Word of God. Oh Lord, by ourselves it's very hard to change. And when we see our lives revealed with error, It is hard to change from practices and habits that have been long ingrained. But over and over again in the Bible, you draw us back to the feet of Jesus Christ and place us there to see Christ crucified for sinners like us. And that therefore there is nothing too much that He, our crucified Lord, can ask of us nor is there too much that He can help us to overcome. We ask that You would help us to dedicate our lives to living for Him and His ways and just get over the self-business of having our way. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Help us to be honest with You and to bow to Jesus Christ and His Gospel in how to live in our homes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw last time that, in summary, the husband-wife relationship is meant to be the closest relationship on earth. It is called a covenant of companionship. It is the only place in the Old Testament where a man and woman entered into covenant with each other to be companions for life, to dedicate themselves to friendship of the deepest sort. The two were designed to become one, one in flesh and one in spirit. And therefore... Husbands and wives need to dedicate themselves to being the best friend of each other and to looking to each other for their best friendship. And we saw that husbands reveal their masculinity not in authority and power, but in using their authority and power to deny themselves for their bride. To be giving and sacrificial. That's what manhood is about. Denying oneself. 
Denying self-will. Denying oneself perhaps even legitimate things and desires for the good of the bride as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He stands before us as a real man. As man was meant to be. And yet He had no place to lay His head. And that real femininity, femininity and womanhood is that which resides in self-denial and sacrificial love for her husband, curing his loneliness and helping him, dedicating her life to be the best friend and companion by covenant of her husband. The unique thing about Christian marriage is that it is not meant to be a relationship in which we enter to get something. It is finding a person whom we wish to serve the rest of our lives because we love them. It is not give and take. It is not 50-50. It is not wash one hand and get the other one washed back. For even the Gentiles love those that love them. It is a sacrificial dedication to be unto each other what Jesus Christ was to us upon the cross. Dedicating His life and His death for our good. So that relationship of husband and wife is a wonderful opportunity to experience and taste unconditional love. Complete acceptance with all our faults and weaknesses and remaining sins. And doing the same for one another. And we saw last week that Christ Himself and His relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ is the model. If you're ever confused about what to do as a husband, think of Jesus Christ. Think of how He walked upon this earth and what He did upon the cross and what He's doing right now in heaven for His people. If you're ever confused about what to do as a wife toward your husband, look at the church in the New Testament and see how she loved Christ and gave herself up for Him and dedicated herself to fill Him who fills all things. And if you'd like to know what kind of communication a husband and wife should have, then you have to look again in the Scriptures and see the kind of speaking that Christ does to the church and the church does to Christ. The intimacy. The honesty. The integrity. And the concern that is conveyed as you read the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not know what tiredness is. There are not enough words that you can imagine or say that will bore Him to death. Or cause him to turn away an ear from the concerns of his bride. And in the New Testament, we find that the bride can say anything to her Lord with the promise that he will receive her and hear her and help her. And so the communication between Christ and the church becomes essential to understanding 
the communication between a husband and wife. Last time we began to look in verse 25 about laying aside falsehood and speaking truth, each one of us with our neighbor, for we're members of one another. We should speak the truth in love to each other. And sometimes it's painful and hard, but it is the only way to build a relationship that goes beyond superficiality and learned responses that are comfortable. This is my territory. This is her territory. And as long as we exercise our privileges and our relationship in those territories, we're okay. But I better not cross this line. I better not talk about that. That's not to be. For we don't have separate circles as husbands and wives. We're in the same circle. The two have become one. And we're to be able to speak to each other about anything we need to talk to each other about. Just as surely as you can say anything to Jesus Christ and He can say anything to you. There are directions in how to do that to keep us from further sin against each other, however. James says that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1, 19 and 20. For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Isn't it interesting how quickly anger is brought into the problem of speaking truth and communicating? That's what James says. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Why did he throw that in there? Speak the truth in love, each one of you with his neighbor. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why did he throw that in there then? Because the biggest hindrance in speaking the truth to each other and having the freedom to speak the truth to each other, to have no boundaries of intimacy and honesty between a husband and wife is the sin of anger. If Christians do not deal with the sin of anger in their relationship, they can never enter into that companionship, that closeness, that unity, that fellowship and oneness which God created Adam to taste in Eve and created Eve to taste in Adam. I believe anger is the biggest problem in every marriage. The problem is it's hard to recognize anger and what it is and how it affects your relationship. Most of us think of anger as somebody raging and storming about the house. Using curse words of some kind. Throwing things across the room. Smashing in doors. Or storming out of the house. Huffing and puffing. Some explosion. But that's not all anger is. Anger is also that quiet eating away at the heart that saves vengeance for a rainy day. As David's son 
saved it in his heart to murder the violator of his system. He acted like everything was fine. Till the time came. Anger that is sinful is the real problem in marriages. And it has many synonyms. And you may not agree with these synonyms, but these are my synonyms as a pastor. People present their problems in different ways and use different words. But you know a word that is usually missing? I'm angry. Because everybody knows angry is wrong. At least sinful anger is. So here's how it's presented. I'm hurt. I'm so disappointed in him. I am so frustrated with her. It is so irritating. It's so depressing. It's so discouraging. It is just hopeless. Behind every one of those words, I am convinced as a pastor of 20-something years, hides a sinfully angry heart. And most of the time, given enough time, I can prove it. There are two kinds of human anger. There is righteous anger and there is sinful anger. I know that there is such a thing as humanly righteous anger because our Lord Jesus had it in Mark chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. Think of the anger that you have toward another's sin or hurt or disappointment or frustration. What is it like? How does it feel? How does it manifest itself? In Mark chapter 3, our Lord Jesus Christ was angry. And this is the word that is used in Ephesians 4. In verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand and be... And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. What was the righteous anger of Jesus Christ? Did he say to these Pharisees, you know, you've really hurt me. That hurts. You, you don't believe I'm the Son of God. You think that my disciples are breaking the Sabbath in the grain as they walk through the fields and pick the heads of grain. That disappoints me. You know, it's irritating because I've tried to explain to you what I believe and who I am and what I teach and you just don't seem to listen. What's wrong with you anyway? 
And by the way you're acting and treating me, how can I get in any frame of mind to heal this man now? It says that the Son of God looked around at them with anger. And this is how you knew that His anger was righteous. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart. He was grieved for them. Not offended because of what they did to Him. He saw that they did not believe in the Messiah whom His Father had sent. And that grieved Him at their hardness of heart. He saw that they had no concern for this man with a withered hand. That they were selfish and self-centered and had no love for such a man. And he was grieved and pitied the hardness of heart that they had come for. The twisted morality that they had. That they would, they would pick at Jesus. So on the Sabbath, that they wouldn't want to heal a man. What kind of twisted morality did they have? It grieved him to see that in them. It grieved him to see how wrongly they understood what God the Father was like and how compassionate and kind He was and how concerned He was for this man with a withered hand. But Jesus did not take it personally in this text. He didn't say, you know, you ought to have more respect for me because I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. You don't know who you're talking to, buddy. Oh no. The anger that is righteous is the anger that is grieved over the sin of another and what that sin has done to them and to those around them. But it has nothing to do with my rights being violated. Me being rejected. Me being hurt. Righteous anger is permitted for the Christian. When we hear of murder and terrible immorality and theft, those things create in our hearts a hatred for sin and a righteous anger against the perpetrations of one against another and the harm and hurt that has come from them. We agree with God that this is evil. And we pray for justice. But that righteous anger is not against another because of what they have done to us. How what they have done has affected us. Even our Lord, when He went through the temple and plated the, the whip out of cords and cast them bodily out of the temple, turning over tables, He says the reason He was angry with what they had done in the temple, making merchandise and cheating the people with sacrifices was one reason only. He said, zeal for my Father's house has consumed me. 
This is supposed to be a house of prayer. It wasn't because they disrespected him or didn't listen to his words. It was because they were harming his father who is in heaven. Righteous anger is not concerned with self and revenge. And how you have been hurt and trampled upon. It is concerned with the glory of God and the good of men. And it grieves over what men have done to to themselves with their sins. What is sinful anger like then? Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. I think we see a real good example of it. And this is an important point that I want to make tonight about all sinful anger. You remember the parable of the prodigal son. How the prodigal took half of his father's estate and squandered it with loose living, went to a foreign land, spent all his money on, on drink and food and women. And he was left penniless in a foreign land, feeding pigs, found himself wanting to eat the pig food. And in that place, he came to himself and he said, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father. I will go to my father and I will tell him I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he returned. He returned to his father who represents the father in heaven. God, our father. And he was embraced by that father and forgiven. And the father said, bring the fatted calf. Bring the best ring. Bring the best robe. Bring the best sandals. My son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Isn't that wonderful? Such a message of grace. And so the father... In verse 25, after he had done these things, his older son was in the field. And we came and approached the house. He heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And then he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Let me ask you, who was the brother mad at? Who was he mad at? Was he mad at the other brother? 
This brother that had come home now, he's messing things up. I was the sole heir of what's left. Now he's putting his finger back in the pot, and I've been faithful all along. Is that what he was mad at, his brother? Oh, no. He was mad at his father. Verse 29. For so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. Yet you have never given me a kid. This son who is of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots. You killed the fattened calf for him. There is no doubt that the older brother was angry with his wayward brother. There had to be some jealousy there. There had to be some kind of comparing himself with that brother. I've been faithful. He's run away. What right does he have to come back into this situation? Perhaps he was bearing a grudge of some kind toward his brother. He brought up his brother's past offenses here, even after his father had forgiven him. He was jealous. Jealous that this brother had received something he had never received. And his anger was manifested in a a tirade of words and accusations toward his father, and also a withdrawal from the presence. Well, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. I'm not going to participate in this hypocrisy. But what the Bible teaches is this. When you're angry at another brother, you're really angry with the father. Because every sinful anger is not against your wife. It is not against your husband. It's not against your children. And it's not against your parents. It is an attack upon God Himself. And until you and I understand what the sin of anger is, we will never deal with it in our lives. We will always find enough reason in the prodigal brother to feel superior, to feel justified in our anger. We will always find a reason and a way to express our anger in a way that kind of sticks it in there somehow or withdraws coldly and avoids till someone comes outside and says, would you please come in and join the rest of the family? We'll find some way to express it. But until we understand that every sinful anger against another human being, especially our own family, is anger against God, we will never be convicted of sin enough. We will never see the work of Jesus' death upon the cross for something so awful that we will hate the sin of anger and flee from it. I want to prove that to you. In Matthew chapter 5. Verse 
James 4 says, what's the reason for your quarrels? Is it not because you lust and then argue and quarrel and fight? We feel like our rights and our privileges have been trampled on by another and we feel justified in our anger. But until we understand that our anger, even at another sins against us, that sinful, personal anger against them is against God, we will never deal with it. In Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. You see, to be angry at another brother or another person in a sinful manner, whether you explode and give a tirade of words instead of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, or whether you clam up and withdraw and refuse to speak and show them how much they've affected you, Whatever your manifestation of anger toward another person that is sinful and your personal hurt is felt, the ultimate sin is it's a violation of the law of God. Thou shalt not kill. And when you sin against another person, you are sinning against God. That is why John in 1 John 3 and 4 and 5 puts so much emphasis upon this truth. He that hates his brother and says, I love God, is a liar. For you cannot love, you, you cannot love God whom you have not seen if you hate your brother whom you have seen. Hatred of men and love for God are incompatible. Sinful anger is a rejection of God. Whether you call it depression, whether you call it something so extreme sometimes as suicide, it is a giving up on God to arrange the providences of your life and you feel like He has brought too much in your life that you can't bear, and since this person in front of you is the reason for it, it's okay to strike out at them when all the time you're striking out at God. When the people of Israel came to Moses grumbling about the food in the wilderness, we want to go back to Egypt. You've led us out here to die. What did Moses say to them? You aren't grumbling against me. You're not upset with me. You're grumbling against God. Because God brought you out here, though I was the instrument and though I'm here, you're grumbling against God. 
Sinful anger is always directed against God. It is a denial of His goodness. It is a rejection of His wisdom. It is a refusal to believe in His integrity that He will allow nothing to overtake us that is beyond our ability to endure with Him. It is a giving up on His his love and concern. It's a refusal to believe that His providence is being well-ordered and good. And so, we strike out at the nearest thing in His providence. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents. And all the time, we're attacking the God who spared not His own Son for our souls. Anger is a terrible sin. It is murder. What has your spouse done to you? Have they spoken harsh words? Have they refused to do something you commanded them to do? Maybe they just don't agree with you. And it makes you mad. And you find yourself angry in your heart toward them, wanting to avoid them, not wanting to look in the eye to them, not wanting to spend time keeping yourself busy so you don't have to be in the same room with them, staying up a little late so you don't have to go to bed with them, You know what that is? That's murder. The law of God is very broad. It is exceeding broad, says the Old Testament. And it is ultimately an attack upon God. And until you see that your sinful anger against your loved one and even against your enemy is ultimately murder in the heart. And whatever they did against you is not as bad as murder. So you can quit comparing notes on who's more righteous. You will never deal with anger. And overcome it instead of being an outburst of anger, learning how to be quiet, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. You'll never overcome the fear of clamming up, being afraid to speak, but knowing that Christ wants you to say something that is kind and good or even corrective toward your spouse. Love. Anger is murder. And it must be dealt with at the feet of God with honesty, with integrity, and realizing that every bitter word and every evil thought that we have ever perpetrated against another human soul has been a strike on the nails that pierced his hand. A hand on the spear that pierced his side. A press on the thorns that pierced his brow. Till we hate murder. We must deal roughly with ourselves to change so that we can quit excusing our behavior because our mate or spouse or family member is so bad. The truth is it does not matter what they do. What matters is what you do because we stand before the living God alone. With or without a Savior, alone. And we give account for our deeds not theirs. Now, I want to rush on and conclude tonight.
Having said this, having made the point that righteous anger is a very rare thing, let us turn back to Ephesians 4 and point out something. Every time you're in a bad mood, every time you're irritated and don't want to be around someone, every time you're hurt at something they've done to you, every time you feel bitter and don't want to talk, or you feel like you'd like to explode and tell them what you really think, every time you bear a grudge and keep remembering old offenses and bringing them up to explain to yourself how bad they are and how good you are in comparison, you can be sure of one thing, you are sinfully angry. I don't know how any plainer to put it. And this is not just my opinion. What I'm saying to you this evening is well tested by the Reformed faith worldwide. This is the theology of sin. You can know that something's wrong when sinful anger is in your heart. And Paul said, verse 26 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. An old pastor said to me one time, I don't guess he was really old then, he was a cousin of mine. And I went to him to talk to him when I was considering marriage to Debbie. And he talked about the joys and the sorrows of marriage. We sat there in the Auburn University Library and he said something to me which I've heard many older pastors say to me. He said, son, don't ever go to bed angry with your wife. You know what he was saying? Ephesians 4.26 Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You see, when we commit ourselves to marry one another in that covenant of companionship, we have committed ourselves to be so one that even as Adam and Eve stood in that garden naked and not ashamed, because there was nothing between them. So we, as husband and wife, are to be so one that nothing stands between us when we lay our head on that pillow at night. To let things go unresolved and carry over to the next day is nothing but to build a wall between us brick by brick by brick by brick by brick. And we wake up with the same irritation. We wake up on edge. We wake up angry because it's been unresolved. There is a law of God. It is a law. It is not an option. If you're a Christian spouse, you must not let the sun go down on your wrath. You must talk it out. You must work it out. You must resolve your differences to build a godly marriage. The two shall become one, not two.
to wake up in the morning still hurt, still angry, still irritated, remembering the things that have been done yesterday. Having an unforgiving spirit is no way to begin a day as a Christian couple. God has said, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, and it's not an option. You and I are commanded, we are commanded to resolve our anger before the sun sets upon our families. We're not to ignore each other. We're not to act indifferent to each other. We're not to harden our heart toward each other. We're to deal with our anger. How do you do that as a Christian? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. First of all, as a Christian... You have to dedicate yourself to getting out of the revenge business. You know what revenge is? It is justified justice. And what the Bible teaches is that you and I no longer, and never did actually, have the privilege, authority, or right to bring vengeance upon another. Romans 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the anger of God. The wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Is your spouse hungry? What do you do to your spouse? You feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon this, his head. And Proverbs 25, 21, from which this is quoted, says, And the Lord will reward you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you angry, sinfully angry at your spouse, at your children, at your parents? You have to get out of the revenge business. Because it's murder. It is murder in the heart and it is an attack upon the God who has made both of you. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus told the disciples how to begin dealing with anger. Sinful anger Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. Do you know how silly it is for us to hold grudges? How wrong it is for us to refuse to forgive in the heart the offenses that others commit against us. To roll over on our side and huff and puff and go to bed angry. To wake up in the morning tense and irritated. It is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say act like nothing has happened. It doesn't say pretend like nothing ever happened. What it says is, if you wish to deal with a relationship that is based on love and grace instead of works and anger, when you stand praying, you have to forgive. If you have anything against anyone, and that includes husbands and wives. That includes parents. It includes children. It includes church friends who have been thoughtless and sinful in the things they said and did. Because the Gospel of Jesus Christ, if it does anything when it comes to the heart, it creates the capacity to forgive. To no longer hold others in bondage to their sins. To place yourself in the position of master and they're in the position of debtor. And Jesus said, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. This is not earning forgiveness by your forgiving others. It is a fact. You cannot be right with God unless you're willing to forgive the sins of others. You cannot have a growing relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit while you hold on to bitterness and anger and revenge. For you cannot love the God whom you have not seen if you hate your brother whom you have seen. There are times when love covers a multitude of sins and we should not bring it up. We should stand praying and forgive. But there are other times when it will hurt the other person or cause reproach on the name of Christ, which we must go and confront our brother, our wife, our husband. Yes, it's okay for a wife to correct her husband according to biblical principles. Just as surely it is right for another Christian to correct another Christian. As long as sin is in the picture and the law of God and the Word of God is clear on the matter. 
but even then to go with a spirit of gentleness, which we'll look at next week, of graciousness, lest we also be tempted. Not you did wrong. Straighten out your life with God. What's the matter with you? But a heart that is grieved that they have sinned so to make a separation between them and their God. And that they have harmed and hardened their own heart. And you are grieved over their condition and you go to help repair it. To help them, not to hurt them. To strengthen them, not to justify yourself. Oh, this anger has got to go. Personal hurt. Tell that to Jesus Christ. Roughly treated at the hands of godless men. Personally assaulted by them. Personally cursed by them. Crying out to His Father, Forgive them, Father. While He stood praying, Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Anger is the destructive force of the home. The bearing of grudges, the unwillingness to forgive, the withdrawing in coldness, the refusing to speak, and the outburst of anger that only creates more murder in the home. You see, we will not really deal with the sin of anger until we come to this position. That every time we sinfully are angry toward another human being in our family, we are sinfully angry at God. And we will not deal with that sinfulness of anger and learn how to be charitable and forgiving until we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so broad and rich and deep in His daily, constant, charitable forgiveness of our weaknesses and sins of ignorance and omission as well as commission that we are overwhelmed that God is so kind that He doesn't bring up every little fault we have. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you have committed sin, go to your spouse before you roll over at night and say, Honey, forgive me. I sinned against God when I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And if they have sinned against you, and it is something that doesn't need to be overlooked for their good and for the honor of Christ and the protection of others. Gently say, honey, there's something we need to talk about. First of all, have I sinned against you today? You take the log out of your eye first. And then you say to them, honey, you sinned against God today. 
in the way you spoke to the children, in the way you spoke to your parents, in the way you spoke to me. And it's not a good example. You need to go to the Lord and straighten it out. But we don't find anything in the Scripture of how you've hurt me. What have you done to me? What's wrong with you? Why don't you love me like I love you? We find only humble sinners who have been so overwhelmed with the grace of God they've learned how to be gracious toward others. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. It will only divide your relationship further and further. Rather, come together in Jesus Christ and be one. Next time, we'll talk about what forgiveness is and what reconciliation is in communication. We must speak the truth in love toward each other. We must not let the sun go down on our wrath. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.